Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 6th of April, 2022. Uh, we are now at half past one, just about half past one. We've had a few technical problems with the UK column, so hopefully viewers and listeners will be catching up with us uh, from the posted video on the UK column website. So today I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. I'm joined in the studio by Alex Thompson. Uh, we're delighted to have Mike Robinson with us, who's talking from a remote location, and we'll also be joined by our very own nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Well, uh, Mike, thank you very much for your efforts. We should be able to uh, get this news uh, uh, working today. Now, we're going to start with Ukraine, and uh, I think you've got some fairly disturbing uh, footage about what's been happening uh, between the Ukrainian military and civilians. Uh, yes, because, uh, well, I wanted to show this. It is quite a uh, disturbing video, as you say. Brian, this is probably one of the, the, the least uh, disturbing of the videos that I've seen. But nonetheless, I thought it was reasonable because obviously the headlines are full of uh, stories of Russian brutality in Ukraine against Ukrainian uh, civilians. So I thought uh, for the sake of uh, a bit of balance, let's say, uh, we should see... The other side of the picture here. So this is a short piece of video uh, showing Ukrainian military uh, picking up uh, Ukrainian civilians that they believe are um, friendly towards the Russians. So let's have a quick look at this. <laughs> So I think that that makes the point. So I was interested in your thoughts, uh, Brian and Alex, on that because obviously. Uh, we're not seeing that type of behaviour reported in the Western press. Uh, well, Mike, absolutely not. My reaction to that video was to wince straight away at people being kicked in the head while they're restrained on the ground. This is utter, utter brutality, supposedly by professional military forces. Uh, but of course, in UK, in the West, in the USA, we're not getting um, uh, an independent report on what's actually happening uh, between the Russians and the Ukrainian forces. We're not getting the truth about what's happening in Ukraine itself. So this sort of brutality is clearly going on, but of course the BBC refuses to talk about it, and neither are we seeing reports in UK um, mainline papers. Alex, what do you think? Uh, these civilians, once detained, are likely to end up at the regional centre of the SBU, Ukraine's intelligence service. Uh, we've already seen people up to parliamentary level, members of the RADA, detained and accused of treason, and a few of them haven't made it out alive from such detention. So the future is not looking particularly rosy for men, and I think a few women detained in this manner. Uh, just a trivial point, but the soundtrack there involves the Ukrainian soldiers shouting uh, in Russian, of course, at these people on the ground, give us your effing hands, you understand, when they're already pinned down and some of them are already, um, you know, having their arms wrenched. So it's just a show of force. It just doesn't have any kind of policing function. But I'm afraid I've seen far worse uh, than this, actually, from the Ukrainian side, videos that we certainly can't show on the lunchtime news 
uh, of uh, Russian servicemen being detained by Ukrainian units, suffocated in plastic bags, crushed, poisoned, kneecapped, um, their genitals interfered with, uh, and, and worse. You know, up to burnings and crucifixions, actually. That's the worst we've yeah. come across. And, and, and we, we don't get any of these reports on the BBC. So the population of UK, of UK simply being given one side to the story of the conflict uh, in Ukraine itself, this is, it's appalling. The lack of chronology is also telling, isn't it? Uh, you're about to feature the Foreign Secretary talking about what's happened in Bucha in the last week, a suburb of Kiev or a small city just outside Kiev. Um, as far as I'm aware, uh, Russians withdrew on the 30th of March. The mayor of Bucha proclaimed the city liberated of Russians on the 31st of March. Azov Battalion went in on the 1st of March, and it was on the 3rd, when, uh, that's the Monday of this week we've just entered, uh, the 3rd of March, uh, April, sorry, uh, that we first started hearing about atrocities and seeing corpses stacked up in Bucha, which we'll come on to later, but none of that chronology uh, is going on in the Western press. No. Well, whilst we're not getting the truth about what's actually happening in Ukraine and certainly brutality by Ukrainian forces, we're not hearing about that. We've got a massive uh, humanitarian effort now from UK. And how's that playing out by the supply of ambulances? Uh, Mike, take us through this. Yeah, well, this is uh, quite incredible in a sense, because, you know, we have mentioned a number of times on the programme, the parallels between the narrative in the West uh, over Ukraine and the narrative in the West over Syria. And this is just another one. So let's uh, bring on screen here a picture of the uh, of the ambulances. Uh, and uh, well, ambulances to Ukraine. So they're saying 20 NHS ambulances will help bring life-saving care to Ukrainians remaining in towns and cities under Russian bombardments. And this is, uh, you know, on top of what their, the British government at least is claiming are uh, 5.29 million items of medical supplies. Uh, and that includes uh, 3,000 adult resuscitators, 220,000 wound care packs, 550,000 sterile needles, 50,000 packs of bandages, 1,600 pieces of equipment for ventilators, 75,000 cannulas, 380,000 packs of medicines, and that's around 2.8 million doses, including antibiotics and painkillers. And they're also saying 72,000 packs of gloves and 28,000 face masks. Um, so this is uh, what... Uh, the lovely Liz Truss had to say, we've sadly seen day after day the horrific impacts of Putin's cruel war on the people of Ukraine, including evidence of appalling acts by Russian troops in towns such as Erpen and Bucha. Uh, and uh, she went on to say, the UK has been among the biggest aid donors providing food, medicines and generators to help those affected. These world-class NHS ambulances will now help bring life-saving care directly to those injured in the conflict. But as I say, uh, we've seen this narrative before. Uh, this is uh, from 2017 in the Independent. Ambulances donated by UK public save lives in Syria with an hours of arrival. And I mean, once that uh, narrative was built, uh, then it continued for quite some time. But if you remember at that time, we had Vanessa Bailey on the programme talking about the ambulances, how these ambulances ended up in the hands of uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and related uh, organisations in Syria. Uh, so they weren't being used for the benefit of the Syrian people at all. They were being used for the benefit of the insurgency. And, and uh, that's, well, Alex, you might have a view on this, but that's probably what will happen in this case as well. well. The 
the ideological overlap is there, the commonality between the two. Uh, as I recall, uh, Vanessa personally strolled up to uh, an abandoned lockup, which had been used by the Al-Qaeda affiliates in the suburbs of Aleppo, uh, and she found the West Midlands registered regular or cast-off British ambulance there, parked up in a garage with the locals uh, now free to speak, saying this ambulance only drove around uh, treating jihadis. So in the Ukrainian situation, if we are right with this, uh, I think, well-founded suspicion, uh, these ambulances will be driving around treating the Azov battalion. And of course, at home, we've got problems with the supply of ambulances to meet the needs of people here in UK under the NHS system. So incredible. Uh, I just find the behaviour of the, of the government so blatant, but also incredible at the moment, uh, that we can take facilities from UK, it's automatically put out in Ukraine, but do we really know what's going to be used Perhaps for these assets? Bring in Debbie Evans very briefly here, because if I'm not wrong, Cornwall, where she lives, is the worst British county of all for the availability of ambulances. And she's been talking recently about problems at weekends with wait, people waiting hours just to get an ambulance. And then, you know, how, how long they have to queue for the, the admission to general hospital. So what is the situation there, that Debbie, in Cornwall with ambulance supply? Um, ambulances are seen to be taking an awful long time at the moment. Um, our local hospital, uh, Royal Cornwall Hospital Trust, is closed um, to relatives and patients. So ambulances apparently are queuing up outside. So how we can spare a load of ambulances, I have absolutely no idea. When some people have been known to wait up to sort of eight to 12 hours for ambulances. Yeah, Debbie, th thank you for that. Uh, well, Mike, we've got uh, more really now on the Russian side, and this is something that's taken place with the uh, Russian embassy in Ireland. It's a quite incredible situation, Brian, if, if you think that uh, even in time of war, diplomacy is important, at least because, you know, we're just seeing this ridiculous uh, uh, move towards punishing the Russians at every opportunity. And, and of course, the first uh, casualty of this is the diplomacy. So uh, let's put this on screen. This is from the Irish uh, Daily Mirror. And the headline is Russian embassy urges Irish government to intervene as it faces fuel shortage with uh, companies refusing to deliver supplies. So what the article says is that the Russian embassy in Ireland is running out of fuel for heating and hot water and is complaining that numerous Irish oil companies have refused to deliver supplies. It has forced the embassy to write a letter to Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney uh, asking the government to intervene uh, before they run out. In a letter seen by the Irish uh, Mirror, the Russians, ironically one of the biggest oil exporters before the Ukraine invasion, uh, have requested Foreign Affairs intervenes into this clearly discriminatory case. A source said the embassy is struggling because no one wants to do business with them as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. It's not only some oil companies they're having issues with, it's banks too, uh, and many more businesses. And the article goes on to say that the, the Irish Mirror also understands that the Bank of Ireland has decided to suspend their accounts uh, with the Russian embassy in Ireland, according to senior sources. And Alex, I'm not aware, I'm not aware of this type of uh, intervention happening before, particularly with uh, with banks? No, it's not something I've got any recollection of having happened, uh, even in actual war situations. Uh, you know, there are situations uh, where there have been wars between former Soviet republics that haven't actually, um, on both sides, declared war against each other and have kept their embassies uh, open with a skeleton staff and the, the services have been uh, continued. You know, and the uh, Russian government uh, or more particularly the embassy acting as a legal entity in Ireland, may have a claim under international law here 
against the uh, government of the Republic of Ireland uh, because there is the better known uh, instance of, dip of diplomatic immunity, which is that you cannot be prosecuted by the courts of the host state as a diplomat. Uh, but the lesser known equivalent of that for the um, executive, including the the guardie in this case, is uh, you can't, there's the diplomatic inviolability, the, the persons and premises uh, of an embassy, in this case of the Russian Federation, uh, can't be interfered with or their lives made undignified or uncomfortable. And uh, the Irish Republic is the guarantor state. It's meant to send guardie policemen to guard uh, against attacks. We've seen truckers reversing into uh, the uh, Russian embassy gates and then the, the guardie sniggering and saying, couldn't do anything about that, mate, sorry. Uh, but it, you know, it could be argued that the financial provision and the energy provision for that uh, embassy, as long as it's there, is a responsibility in the last resort for the host government, rather than the, the host government at the current saying, this is a matter for the banks and the suppliers and we can't do anything about it, tough luck. Yeah, the, the other thing I think we need to highlight, of course, is what we're now seeing is the raw power of banks coming to the surface. The banks, Canada, shutting down people's um, personal accounts and business accounts. Now we, we're, we're seeing banking being used as a raw uh, weapon here against um, embassy staff. And this, this isn't just a, a random uh, European country. This is uh, one of the few countries that's in the European Union, but not in NATO, although, of course, reluctantly it has signed up to PESCO with a lot of arm twisting, uh, so the European Union's own military project. And of course, since the 2008 crash and the bailout that followed, the major Irish banks, not the Bank of Ireland to my knowledge, but the allied Irish bank, for example, have become uh, effectively EU state enterprises. You know, yes. they, the, the EU taxpayer is, is on the hook for them. This could be argued ultimately that this is a, a European Union executive action. Okay, well, we're obviously going to stay posted on that. I think we're going to see a lot more of this type of activity by the banks because, of course, everybody can be controlled who's got a, who's got a bank account. But if we just bring that bank. slide back on screen a moment, Brian, we, we should just note that the most read article, at least if the algorithm is accurate uh, for this Irish Daily Mirror uh, piece, is that I, an Irish barista has ended up in hospital after holding in her flatulence around her boyfriend for two years. Now, articles don't become the most read unless the algorithm pushes them at readers on social media. So what is this? We're meant in, in some ridiculously extended uh, fashion to think of this as, a, as a, uh, an attack on women or, or, or something because of domineering male behaviour. And that's far more interesting than what's happening to the Russian embassy right there in Dublin. Well, this is, all, this is all a part of applied psychology by the media to change the way we think and behave. We'll, we'll get on to that at another time, Alex. But you've got uh, some information about Turkish drones in Ukraine. Defence news in the US uh, is often worth watching. And uh, these are on screen at the moment. These Bayraktar drones are Turkey's pride and joy. Uh, and they're being uh, shown here with the Ukrainian state crest on the tail, tail fin. The crest there actually has a word embedded in it. It says volia, meaning freedom um, in Ukrainian. But the Bayraktars are, we are told, uh, something which swung the 2020 war in Azerbaijan's favour against Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and now, uh, if people have been watching my recent appearance with Vanessa Bealey uh, on The Last American Vagabond, uh, and also Eva Bartlett was on that uh, uh, long format interview. We did talk there, if, I'm, if I think it, I think that was the, the right interview, where we mentioned the uh, Bayraktars because it's now coming to light that Turkey uh, has been asked by the Ukrainians whether um, 
the engines and the whole general specifications of this drone would allow aerosol spraying deep in you know, foreign territory, enemy territory. But let's put that back on screen and see what's going on. The uh, defense news angle on this is uh, that, it, that the Ukrainians are going to need more powerful engines. So towards the end of this piece by Kirsten Fontenrose and Andrei, Andy Draby, we see that for Ukraine, its drone arsenal will likely continue to be effective in protecting its forward line of troops, but ineffective over territory that Russia grabs. Note that above here, there's a sneaking admission that Russia is consolidating gains rather than striking out further into ethnic Ukrainian majority territory. But the defense news piece continues, if Ukraine is put into a position of having to take back territory, this is suggesting that if there's a further forward push uh, into northern and western Ukraine, it will need longer range attack drones with satellite communications. I think this may be a bit disingenuous because we have indications that the Ukrainians uh, have been putting beefed up engines uh, and greater fuel tanks in these drones already since last year. Uh, but there, you know, there's, there's an indication here that this is with the connivance of the West. Well, the other, the other thing which I think we have to think about here, Alex, is who is actually flying the drones because you've got a remotely piloted vehicle. So once this thing, well, taking it off the ground, putting it in the air, that does not have to be uh, done by a Ukrainian drone pilot. That could be done remotely by a British pilot or an American pilot. So we have no way of knowing who is actually conducting uh, the war if you start using drones. And I think this is one of the, the things which people should really be aware of. Uh, we know operations in, in Syria were carried out remotely via satellite link, Yes, uh, where we had uh, um, Air Royal Air Force drone pilots uh, flying live missions. From Bryce Norton, I believe. Yeah. Indeed. And now we've got the situation where the West is pumping drones into the Ukrainian conflict. Who is going to be flying those drones? Is it, is it actually going to be NATO that's releasing ordnance from the drones? Is it going to be British and American pilots who are actually flying these things? Meanwhile, the public remains completely ignorant. That's a, what I a, think the real risk is. There is a closer parallel here because Israel was at the cutting edge of drone technology before the Turks launched the Bayraktar. And in the late 2010s, when their strategic ally, Azerbaijan, was tapping them up for the best uh, drone kit they could muster, there were recorded incidents, which we've gone into with Geborg Virats on the Eastern Approaches podcast on the ukcolumn.org website, where the Israelis said, well, if you want, we'll do a live demo for you. This is contrary to all the, the laws of war, all the conventions, of course. We will show up. Uh, we will hold the joystick in the field and uh, show how you, we can shoot Armenian soldiers dead live while you watch. As a, as a sales technique to persuade you to buy our drones. Yeah. So Armenians have been shot dead uh, by Israeli drone operators, and uh, the same may now be applying with the Turks, and as you say, behind them, the British and the Americans, possibly uh, shooting Russians dead and then claiming it was an, an, uh, a Ukrainian drone operation. Yeah, the, these, are, these are very important things for the UK public to be considering because, of course, we're getting no information from the UK government as to what the role of Britain's military is in Ukraine at the moment. But take us on to Europeans' uh, uh, security role, because it's obvious that at the moment both the EU and NATO is, is on a very wobbly uh, footing when it comes to guaranteeing Ukrainian safety. I think what the segment that follows will demonstrate is that the uh, US uh, defence press and the US think tank world is already telling the Europeans that they are on their own. It's uh, very much 
the Donald Trump message of you're going to have to pay, but it's, it's gone a step further than that. Well, it started with Obama, didn't it? With we're pivoting to Asia Pacific or under Obama because it wasn't really his personal policy. Trump said you're going to have to pay your fair share. Under Biden, it's you are going to have to fight the wars in your own space. So here, US Defense News again talking about the Europeans uh, considering how much security guarantee to offer the Ukrainians because the President Zelensky has been calling for this and he's named Britain, Poland, Germany as his, uh, his allies of preference for security guarantees. There's some overlap there with the old Minsk agreement security guarantors, but uh, there's more emphasis on the, on the go-it-alone powers like Britain outside the EU now and Turkey, which, uh, well, nominally in, in NATO, but how much longer? So let's see. Uh, Charles Fries uh, for the EU's Foreign Office, the EEAS, says that as soon as the war is over, or at least if maybe if there's a ceasefire, we need to think what kind of guarantees will be offered to Ukraine. And Fries tells the American military press here that the sweet spot is that the EU will be on the hook for more than Budapest, which is the, uh, the old 1990s accord for Ukraine's security guarantee, including Russia, but less than NATO's Article 5. Now, of course, the Budapest Memorandum is actually explained uh, on, on screen, but uh, it's now a thing of the past. So it, it, it's all in the making, actually. What, what's going to be the security guarantor for the post-war Ukrainian state? Will it be de facto borders or de jure borders that are guaranteed? Uh, will the Crimea and Donetsk and Lugansk be included? Uh, will it be only the territory that is actually controlled by the Ukrainians after the war? And to what extent will this, this uh, guarantee actually involve going to war on behalf of the Ukraine? That's, that all remains to be seen. Now three pieces from Foreign Affairs, which as you can see at the top of the slide here, is the, the organ of the Council on Foreign Relations, Incorporated. Uh, I've put that in uh, not just to acknowledge who the real author is, but to point out that they call themselves rather disingenuously a council as though they were an official organ, but they are forced in their rubric to put ink at the end because they are in fact an incorporated company, a private body. Uh, the CFR, of course, has been explained in great length by a number of analysts. Uh, Daniel uh, Estulin's book on the Bilderberg Group is a good place to start and how they have their placemen all over Washington. Uh, it's the American version of Chatham House, effectively. So in the first of these pieces, which is written by two senior guys at the uh, American-German Marshall Fund, entitled A New Germany, How Putin's Aggression is Changing Berlin, we read this, that for Germany, Russia's attack on Ukraine changed everything. The historian Fritz Stern, who escaped the Holocaust, once wrote about the five Germanies he had come to know in his lifetime, Weimar Germany, the Third Reich, the uh, Federal Republic of Germany, the German Democratic Republic, and then Chancellor Kohl's unified Germany that Mrs. Thatcher was so averse to seeing. That was the fifth Germany, apparently, in his lifetime. And this is editorializing now by the Marshall Fund guys, who are you know, the, the senior German think tank, the one most closely allied with, uh, the, with Washington. What the world is witnessing now, say these authors, at least one of whom is a German, is the birth of a sixth Germany, a new German state, in other words, one willing to exercise military power in defense of liberal democratic values. So not, not for the first time, it seems that uh, liberal democracy is being used as a pretext for something actually quite violent, but it's being actually admitted now, a new German state uh, has replaced the 1990 version of the German state. Let's see what else foreign affairs is talking about. Here, uh, a more junior writer talks about international law in the Ukraine. I just put this in really to, to uh, highlight how much this jars with uh, what we've seen at the beginning of the news. So we're reading here that Volodymyr Zelensky has led Ukraine in perhaps the most remarkable moment 
of resistance and national identity formation in recent memory. There's a sneaking admission there, Brian, that the Ukrainians didn't have a, an idea what their state was on the eve of this war, which I would contend is a major reason why they have gone so far in provoking Russia. Zelensky, we're told, has made Ukraine into a symbol of democracy and freedom in the face of the Russian onslaught. That's an interesting statement. Having seen the video at the start of the, the news of Ukrainian soldiers kicking civilians pinned to the ground, kicking them in the head. That's My thoughts a very, entirely. Very and, interesting statement. But there's more, as, uh, as the old comedians used to say, um, that the war has had the unexpected effect of reviving and reinforcing the international legal order. This would be that rules-based international order that you hear about from the West in ways that Putin did not anticipate. Indeed, says the CFR's organ, Foreign Affairs, Ukraine's decision to rely on law, even as Russia has relied on the brute force, has raised the stakes of the confrontation. The conflict is not simply about the future of Ukraine. It is about the future of the global legal order as we know it. Now, that, that's a key statement, um, Alex. We're really starting to see what this conflict is about. And later in the news, when we're actually covering a segment to do with matters of health and vaccines and COVID, uh, we've got a gentleman called Attali. Uh, we've got a small video clip, um, which uh, Debbie um, sourced this clip, where he's talking about this exact subject. So yeah. I think that's going to be a very interesting clip to reinforce that statement. Bear in mind the arc of my segment here. We've, I've been making a case that the Europeans are told for you, this is existential. You can have a Fourth Reich or a Sixth Germany. Uh, you can duke it out. But back home in America, where the CFR is based, although, of course, their biggest secret is that they are acting on behalf of a British roundtable interest, uh, here they're writing about the perilous long game in Ukraine as seen from the Beltway. And this is written by a RAND Corporation senior, that think tank in the US that does the American uh, military's dirtiest thinking for it uh, at a kind of uh, half, half arm's length remove so for the purpose of deniability. And the subheader here is compromising with Putin, maybe not Europe's, America's best option. Uh, Europe is to slog it out, not America. Uh, what's the detail on this? The Rand Corporation, speaking as the CFR, says it will be extremely hard, if not impossible, for the United States to achieve either its short or long-term objectives if the war drags on for months longer. Again, the sneaking admission, Brian, is the Russians are going to stay fighting for longer than had been bargained for. The Rand Corporation continues, however distasteful it may be to reach a compromise with Putin after the carnage he has unleashed, the United States, again, not Europe, the West or NATO, the United States, should work to secure a negotiated settlement to the conflict sooner rather than later. So we're seeing which way the wind is blowing here. Uh, let's go on straight to the next slide here. The diplomat, which specializes in East Asia, uh, is asking what could European militaries contribute to the defense of Taiwan? So we've already seen Slovenia and Canada uh, sucked dry of tanks for the purpose of arming the Ukrainians and being able, uh, and being in a long waiting list from the United States contractors to replenish their own tanks and armored fighting, fighting vehicles. Here we see that the diplomat is actually excerpting a re report by the IISS entitled Taiwan Cross-Strait Stability and European Security Implications and Response Options, published on the 30th of March. What do we see? This is the conclusion of the paper as carried by the diplomat in their own write-up. Select European powers could provide limited military support to the USA and Taiwan. Ah, the whole direction of travel has changed, that military mobility, rolling the tanks into Rotterdam and Antwerp and sending them to Lithuania. 
This is now being reversed. Europe is to make tanks, perhaps made in new German factories under that new 100 billion euro budget. Provided they got Russian gas, of course. Oh, oh quite, yes, yes, which they're now spending 9% of German GDP on, aren't they? Um, so they're to arm the USA and Taiwan if there's a second Ukraine in the Chinese sphere. Um, so this could imp they could also uh, front up cyber intelligence and defense capabilities, strategic airlifts for civilians, so uh, you know, uh, adopt a Taiwanese family in your, in your bed sit in Devon perhaps, dispatching naval task forces and combat ad aircraft for search missions, and airlifting air defense capabilities, uh, an admission that America doesn't have enough or wants to keep the ones it has uh, in, the, it's in, in the Eastern Pacific. A key assumption, says the uh, report, is ultimately by the IISS, in all of these scenarios is that Europe would not be acting alone. Well, <laughs> even by saying that, they're suggesting that there might come a time when America says, Taiwan's not our war. If, if, the, if the Fourth Reich wants to, to stop uh, the Chinese getting Taiwan, then let them uh, duke it out. And it finishes, given that any higher con intensity conflict with China would significantly reduce US military capacity in Europe. So again, they would be sucking their forces out of Europe, not beefing them up. This could result in a further headache for European military planners, but maybe Chancellor Schultz's 100, Euro 100 billion uh, euros will plug some of that gap. It's very interesting to see, of course, that you've got to go to these, we'll, we'll call them deep documents to find out what is, that, is actually happening politically and with the geopolitics. You're not going to read this uh, in the Times or the Guardian. You're not going to see it on the BBC. You've got to go to the source documents from these organisations to actually find out the true picture. It's true, yes. And uh, we, we're going to finish this uh, segment with just a bit of video. This is a very brief clip of the Danish uh, commissioner at the European Commission speaking, Margrethe Vestager, whose own portfolio is, uh, is trade-related, but she's one of the several vice presidents of the European Commission for whole strategic areas under Ursula von der Leyen as the, the ultimate boss of the commission. And Vestager's particular portfolio is making a Europe, uh, is, is Europe fit for a digital age. Uh, so she's the digital guru, but she's also interested in trade and competition. She was in the running to be the next European commission head. Uh, ultimately, von der Leyen got her chosen. And uh, here she is talking about what ordinary families can do uh, in order to resist Putin. Because everyone is asking, what can I do? You can do two things. Uh, control your own and your teenager's showers. And when you turn off the water, you say, take that, Putin. I don't know. <laughs> what, well, what can be said about that? Uh, well, I, I don't think I want to say anything because this is the level of, of, of the article you were pointing to where flatulence is put next to serious things of war in Ukraine. Yeah, quite. So, uh, yeah. F think... Finishing up for me, a uh, parliamentary question or two by um, a member of the ALBA party, which is the breakaway group from the Scottish National Party, Kenny McCaskill, who is a Westminster MP, so a, a, an MP at British level for that party, uh, who's kept his seat um, after transferring parties, uh, but he was elected as an SNP member of parliament. He's pretty uh, hardcore left wing, which makes it even more interesting that uh, someone of his persuasion is asking these questions. Uh, he's now uh, talking about, uh, if we bring that on at the moment, the uh, the next slide. Yeah, just uh, pop, be coming pop, up. pop that on to the next sequence there. There we are. Ariel. Yes. So here we are. This is Kenny McCaskill uh, asking um, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence a couple of things. First, on the 17th of March, if memory serves, he was asking James Heapy uh, whether the Azov regime, uh, sorry, Azov regiment in the Ukrainian armed forces is a neo-Nazi or far-right force in an, in an MOD assessment. 
And the blethering answer says, uh, well, not really, because they've become a party and uh, they've decided to become a bit more uh, pro-Jewish. And they even have some Jewish members, so, so nothing to worry about. This was followed up a few days later by McCaskill, who for seven years in the new, then new Alex Salmond administration in Scotland was the Justice Secretary. And of course, he had the Al-Megrahi uh, case to deal with, the, the Libyan um, alleged bomber of Lockerbie. And that was what most McCaskill's mainly known for. But he did, he did learn quite a lot about geopolitics in those years, to be fair to him. He, in his follow-up, says, does the Secretary of State for Defence know uh, whether any members of, of Ukraine's Azov movement have access to British-supplied anti-aircraft weapons? And again, it's not the Secretary of State himself who answered, uh, but it was the deputy, James Heapy, who says, well, uh, you might want to read this, Brian, because you read it to me the other day and you thought there was a lot of verbiage in here. Well, I thought it was a very interesting reply. The UK is taking a lead role in coordinating the humanitarian and military support for Ukraine. This includes lethal aid in the form of defensive weapons and non-lethal aid such as body armour, anti-aircraft weapons. Star Streaker being issued to the Ukrainian armed forces for them to use for the purpose of defending their sovereign country. Under the current circumstances, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is likely to have operational command of the National Guard, which also includes Azov Battalion. All shipments of lethal aid to Ukraine are being carefully uh, calibrated against the current, the, sorry, the current content context on the ground. So that statement is saying very clearly, yes, these arms are getting into the hands of the Azov battalion. So yeah. there you are. Yes. Uh, but th this is only worrying if you start looking at the whole of the segment we've just presented, what the Azov battalion is. Indeed. Well, before we bring Mike uh, back on screen with us, let's just have a, a, a look. This is a report from the Sun newspaper. They had an embedded video clip and we've got Zelensky out and about, apparently looking at uh, um, some very severe uh, bomb damage, uh, damage to vehicles and, and cars. So he's on the walkabout. If we just bring that image back on screen uh, a second, we can just bring some comments in. Um, play on words here, but I, th I thought this was very much not the sun shining on the righteous, but apparently for the Sun newspaper, uh, the sun is shining out of the bottoms of these gentlemen. But have a look at them. They're a very, very interesting group of people. Clean shoes. Uh, we've got Zelensky with hands in pockets. You'll see this in the film clip that's coming up. And I'm going to say he's demonstrating very poor acting of feigned interest in what's going on. But of course, this is a very clean video because there's not a, an Azov Nazi insignia in sight. So the Sun has made sure that this uh, presidential, Ukrainian presidential video propaganda clip is simply streamed across for the British public to suck up. So let's have a look at this very brief clip. Thank you. 
So just for our uh, audience who are only listening, who are only listening into audio, just to give you a better feel for this, we see Zelensky surrounded by armed guards, all very clean, very clean shoes. These men have only just clearly stepped out of the carpeted vehicle. Um, but what's very interesting is Zelensky is very nonchalant. He's got hands in pocket. To me, he doesn't seem very concerned at what he's actually seeing. But when he goes into a setting where aid products are being handed out to the people, water and food and tin food is being given to them over market type stools, there's virtually no reaction from those uh, uh, Ukrainians to his presence at all. One of, one of the people serving, as it were, responds to him. But this to me wasn't a loved leader being welcomed by people who are, uh, are in a deep battle. He was hiding behind the tables where, where this aid was yeah. being given out. I think we would call the the, the, standard, the bystanders there subdued and him perhaps somewhat sheepish. There seems to be a sort of presence yes. hanging over the scene, doesn't there? A, yeah. a menace. State, well, I think because it's so head, heavily staged, but what they're not getting is engagement from the Ukrainians on the ground that here is the beloved, loved leader. So there we are. The sun shines out of their bottoms, according to the sun. But let's have a look at this uh, report from the Wall Street Journal, which is there under the surface. Ukraine, Ukraine quietly receives tanks from the Czech Republic to support the war effort. Now, if you go onto the Wall Street Journal, you can, uh, you can read this. I listened to their audio clip of this article. Um, but I want to bring it in with this one, because this is a Russia Today report where it actually mentions this article. And have a look at what's said here. The Central European nation has also reportedly supplied Kiev with howitzer artillery pieces and Soviet-made BMP-1 infantry fighting vehicles, according to the newspaper. Uh, the supplies have been funded by the Prague government and, quote, some private donors who have joined a state-backed crowdfunding campaign. So what's happening here, um, Alex? We've got oligarchs now buying the weapons for for to be unleashed in in the war if, if that's if what's they're happening in czech stores and it's just like the eve of the second world war that the czechs always like to be heavy on um you know artillery and uh, and and uh, you know, big military pieces that they fact they had more of them than the germans on the eve of the second world war so they're always well supplied there but they they're notable for keeping Soviet era supplies in warehouses so okay they may have mothballed a lot of these bmp1s from the soviet times and uh, some of these howitzers, but you know they're going to release them for a fee, it would seem. So either they were in private collections in the Czech Republic, which makes it even dark, dark, dirtier business, or let's say they were in uh, Czech Ministry of Defence storehouses, so the Treasury or the Ministry of Defence there agreed to release them on receipt of money from what? Private payments from people in or outside the Czech Republic? Well, we just to don't. State coffers? We don't know, but we should know because certainly we should expect to see Britain's security services warning the British public about what's actually happening here. That's not happening. But the other thing which catches my eye on that report is that we've had crowdfunding stopped for people that were trying to protest about vaccines or what's been happening with other civil rights cases, crowdfunding has been stopped. But if you want to crowdfund to pump heavy weapons into Ukraine, that gets a big thumbs up. Uh, Mike, I'm watching your face as uh, we're going through this segment. 
uh, let's broaden it out a bit because we've now got the UK, the US and uh, Australia joining forces. Look, this is, uh, follows on from what Alex was saying about the about the European Union and, and what is clearly being done as part of uh, this whole uh, Ukraine situation is that, that the defence partnerships are being moved ahead uh, at a much faster rate. It's putting new momentum into these. So, you know, we've been talking about AUKUS for a number of months here. So we put this on screen. This is the uh, UK, the United States and Australia have agreed a landmark defence and security partnership that will defend our shared interests across the world, around the world. So this was, I can't remember, Alex, exactly when this was, uh, middle of last year or so it was announced. Something like that, yeah. Uh, yes. But uh, let's see what they're saying today. So uh, I'm going to need you to advance this for me, if you could, Brian. All right, let's take um, it through. So, yes, we, we reaffirmed our commitment. So they've had a meeting yesterday, uh, and they decided that they, to reaffirm their commitment to AUKUS and to a free and open Indo-Pacific in light of Russia's unprovoked, unjustified, and unlawful invasion of Ukraine, we reiterated our unwavering commitment to an international system that respects human rights, the rule of law, and the peaceful resolution of disputes free from coercion. Um, well, of course, that entire final section of that sentence is a lie, but anyway, let's move on. Uh, the next section says, we're pleased with the progress of our trilateral program for Australia to establish conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarine capability. We're fully committed to establishing a robust uh, approach to sharing naval propulsion technology with Australia that strengthens the global non-proliferation regime. Uh, and of course, when it was originally uh, announced, that was what this was about. It was about giving Australia access to nuclear-powered submarine te technology, uh, which was going to be used to for them to be able to, to uh, in inverted commas, defend themselves using conventional munitions. But let's see what they're saying they're going to do next. Um, so we're also committed today to commence new trilateral co co cooperation, sorry, on hypersonics and counter-hypersonics, electronic warfare capabilities, as well as to expand information sharing and to deepen cooperation on defense innovation. Uh, and then the final section of this says, uh, these initiatives will add to our existing efforts to deepen cooperation on cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and additional undersea capabilities as our work progresses on these and other critical defense and security capabilities, we'll seek opportunities to engage allies and close partners. And so, Alex, they're saying in that final sentence there that they, they want to see this broadened out. Yes. Um, so it's not just the five eyes or a selection of them, the three eyes of AUKUS. Uh, this is actually going to be extended to Southeast Asian and continental European nations. But even as a threesome AUKUS, uh, and Brian will know this well from his naval experience as me from my GCHQ as well, uh, the British and, Aust and Americans need the Australians involved because you don't have complete coverage of the globe latitudinally or longitudinally unless you have the Aussies on board. And if you do, then you have a global grid for whatever uh, highly advanced, probably space-based and undersea-based uh, network you want uh, to have in place to have any chance of countering Russian, Chinese and in time maybe even Iranian hypersonic missiles. Uh, whether you can counter hypersonics, I think, is a fundamentally open theoretical question at the moment, but there's a grudging admission there that if they don't try, they'll remain at least one generation behind the Eurasian bloc militarily. Well, I think it is true to say, Alex, that the US has been completely caught out with the development of hypersonic missiles, and although they've tested uh, their own, those tests are long in the dust. So I think the Americans have 
now dropped well behind. But as you say, can they um, operate from Australia? Australia is simply regarded as another stationary air, air base. Floating form. aircraft carrier, yeah, as is Britain. Yeah, indeed. So, um, uh, Mike, what, what have you got here with uh, this uh, tweet from Mod Estonia? So, yeah, so this is the uh, Ministry of Defence of Estonia tweeting this out earlier. Uh, Estonia and the United Kingdom set to spearhead launch of the NATO Defence Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic, and that's called DIANA, which is a transatlantic initiative including private sector and academia. So they're saying, uh, announced this, I think this was yesterday, uh, announced by the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, of, uh, Secretary General of NATO, uh, the Defence Innovation Accelerator will see transatlantic cooperation in critical technologies and help NATO work more closely with industry and academia. Uh, the UK's accelerator will be twinned with a new accelerator in Tallinn, Estonia, to encourage the sharing of expertise, explore the use of virtual sites to train to trial vehicles, including autonomous ones, and test cyber innovations. Uh, so they're going to support startup companies with funding, guidance, and business expertise through these accelerator networks. They're going to offer the use of so-called deep tech test centers to assess technical technological solutions to military problems, uh, including the Defence Battle Lab. Uh, and they're going to work with NATO to develop a virtual marketplace to connect startups uh, with trusted investors, as well as a rapid acquisition service to connect products and buyers at pace. Um, so, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Alex, but this to me looks, I mean, we might use the word fusion. Once again, this is bringing academia, private sector, uh, various other organizations together once again. It's something that Estonian universities and British universities are actually leading the pack in. So it's no surprise that those two nations would push the more reluctant members of the Continental European Alliance, perhaps, into the same path. Because certainly in countries like Germany, uh, a lot of the, the academics in relevant fields would, would have fundamental objections to supporting uh, a, a Fourth Reich or a Sixth, sixth Germany or whatever in this way. But uh, if it's presented as you know, a funky new collaboration, led by the Estonians and the Brits that are regarded as you know, digital innovators, uh, then a bit less threatening, especially if you name it after a, a funky uh, a goddess of antiquity. And, and that will be no coincidence that's actually happened, uh, Alex, I, I think. Yes, and she's also Artemis and Semiramis, of course, so look her up under those names. Right. Um, well, Mike, you're going to take us on to food and, uh, and also energy as a result of, of what we're seeing happen at the moment. Is one of the results of the sanctions. We've been talking about this uh, for quite a few weeks as well, because of course it's not Russia that's bearing the brunt of of the effects of sanctions. Of course, Russia is suffering, but but actually the EU, the UK, United States are going to uh, have a much worse time as a result of uh, our own imposition of sanctions against Russia. So, uh, what we have here is a report from Germany, uh, and if you hit the button again, you'll see a quick translation of that. Um, so it says Aldi, Lidl and Co are raising prices. These foods are now more expensive. And they're talking about, for example, vegetable oils and, and other staples and so on. Uh, they're talking about 30 to 50 percent increases in the prices of, of basic foodstuffs uh, in Aldi in Germany. Uh, and I'm quite sure we're going to see this uh, spreading very quickly uh, throughout Europe and the UK as well. Um, but then if we move on to the next one. Uh, we're also seeing this this report from Bloomberg here, for example, energy shock is huge for the EU, uh, manageable in the United States, according to BlackRock. And so BlackRock are saying that uh, the European Union is going to be spending something above 9% of their gross domestic product on, just on energy this year. 
that's the highest share of GDP in 40 years uh, and more than double the projected level of the United States. Um, so some EU countries, they say, oppose a ban on Russian energy imports because it would risk triggering a, re a recession. Uh, and they say that additional European sanctions are now under discussion, uh, aren't but they aren't expected to target oil and gas. So um, this this difficult situation, Alex, continues uh, because obviously uh, the the US and the UK are very keen to see uh, the EU impose more stringent sanctions, but the EU effectively um, stuck because the, 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 the person they're supposed to be the enemy of is their main supplier, or at least a significant supplier of their energy needs. Yeah, it comes down to Germany as the kingpin, because there are other countries that are 100% reliant on Russian gas uh, for their energy. Uh, Romania, for example, and some of the Baltic states, Poland very nearly 100%. There's also countries in the same kind of uh, latitudinal zone, uh, longitudinal zone as Germany, such as Italy, which are about half reliant on Russian gas. Uh, and of course, that this, this requires uh, you know, decades to address fundamentally, unless you want to leave people to, to freeze overnight in the first winter after the change. Uh, so it's obviously in realpolitik not going to happen. Uh, but you know, the, the, the proportion of spending uh, of GDP on energy is just going to skyrocket. And this at a time when defence spending, which was kept artificially low, deceitfully low on, in continental Europe, down at the 1% level for decades, has now shot up. We've seen even that the CFR's House Journal is saying the Germans will be the new military superpower, effectively, at least for their own part of the world. So at the same time, they're going to have to tax and spend on their military budgets. Uh, how much is going to be left for the productive economy? Well, that's going to be very interesting to see. What, what have you got here, um, Mike? We seem to have an interesting letter, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Right. So, so the question is, what's the uh, UK going to do with respect to energy? Uh, now, Boris Johnson claims that uh, the UK is only 3% reliant on, uh, on Russian gas. Uh, but of course, the uh, British government and many people around the British government, this current British government, at least very keen to see shale gas exploitation in the UK and have been for many, many years now. So uh, the UK government has written to the British Geological Survey yesterday uh, to ask them, well, what does it say there? I'm writing to commission, this is uh, uh, quasi quartang, uh, writing to commission a short report on the geological science of shale gas fracturing. Uh, and the uh, modelling of seismic activity in shale rocks in the UK. Now, of course, the reason that fracking failed, uh, as, you know, because of the absolutely fantastic campaigns that were being run against it at the time, but the, 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 the main reason that it failed was because uh, of the seismic activity triggered by uh, shale gas you know, test wells and so on in various parts of the country. Um, and so uh, what they're saying is, and if you just uh, tap that again, you'll see it scroll on through. But what they're saying is that uh, the British Geological Survey has been asked to investigate whether there have been any new developments in the science of hydro hydraulic fracturing, in particular, whether there are new techniques in use, uh, which, uh, sorry, excuse me one second, uh, some new techniques in use which would reduce the risk and magnitude of seismic events. If there are any new techniques, uh, whether scientists are confident that they could uh, be suitable for use in fracturing in the UK, uh, and uh, uh, with its specific geology and high population density, and given any new developments of these technologies, higher the seismicity caused by fracturing companies to other forms of underground energy production, 
such as geo geothermal coal mining or surface activities such as construction uh, and the evidence on the different safe thresholds for activity, whether they remain uh, the, cor the correct ones and whether uh, differences between them remain justified. And of course, uh, what we have seen over the uh, uh, last several months is that uh, the US has become a, a major exporter of uh, liquefied natural gas in ships to Europe. Uh, and of course, this is all fracked gas. And so British government very, very keen, I believe, uh, to see the UK getting some of that, uh, that market share. Uh, and so they want to see a massive increase in uh, uh, development of, of fracking in this country uh, once again. So uh, I, th I think that the, uh, the campaigners that, that were so effective, Brian, uh, in the last uh, uh, number of years to stop that uh, process are going to have to uh, dust off their campaign hats once again. I think that's absolutely true. We should uh, remember Ian Crane for his excellent work at, at highlighting the dangers of shale gas and fracking to the British public. But yes, as many people as possible who understand what the real dangers are need to dust off their coats and, uh, and look to become active again. Um, but I can't help think that um, this is another cynical ploy by the, by the UK government that under the smokescreen of it's that nasty Putin interfering with the world um, oil markets, uh, we've got the opportunity to try and help the profits, get the profits going for the shale gas companies. So under the smokescreen of all matters, Putin and Ukraine and turbulence in the oil industry, what can we do? Well, the government can smash up more of the country uh, by going for the shale gas, but maybe I'm I'm a bit cynical on that. More particularly in Lancashire, um, people who watched Ian Crane's material over the years will know that Quadrilla uh, had a particular site in Lancashire that was very controversial, that Ian perhaps single-handedly ensured ultimately was not going to be fracked. Um, but of course, that's uh, well remained open. Uh, they were expecting to have to pour concrete down the shaft, at least that was their PR line, and what a shame that would be. And they got a stay of execution just last week from what's I think called the North Sea Transition Authority, uh, telling them uh, that, that they can keep it mothballed for a bit longer. Uh, so that it's all pointing the same way. Very convenient in Very commercial convenient. sense there, Alex. Uh, well, Mike, um, let's end off this uh, segment with Imran Khan. What are you seeing with uh, this really interesting story? Well, Yes, I haven't seen, to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but I haven't seen too much coverage of this uh, in the Western press, no. uh, or at least to, to, to any great detail. But uh, let's put NDTV on screen here. Uh, and we have uh, the headline, Imran Khan paying price for being disobedient to US, uh, colon, Russia, because, of course, he is refusing, or he has been refusing, uh, to impose sanctions or to break his uh, diplomatic ties with Russia and so on. Now, Imran Khan went to uh, Moscow on the 24th of February, and that was the same day that, uh, uh, that uh, Putin ordered the special, the uh, quotes, sorry, special military operation uh, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, in that, on that day, then, he became the first Pakistani uh, premier to visit Russia uh, since uh, Nawaz, uh, Nawaz uh, Sharif uh, in 1999. So, uh, this has resulted in quite a lot of pressure on him. There were calls for uh, votes of no confidence. Uh, and as a result, uh, he uh, decided on Sunday to uh, call an election uh, within three months. Uh, and uh, that no confidence motion then was dismissed by the Deputy Speaker of the National Assembly. 
so if we look at the uh, next one, it says uh, the headline here from CNBC was Imran Khan's surprise call for snap elections in Pakistan may just pay off. And it says uh, on Sunday, Khan avoided an attempt to oust him when Deputy Speaker Kazim uh, Khan Suri uh, refused to hold the no confidence vote. Suri, a member of Khan's ruling party, claimed that there was foreign interference in the attempt to unseat Khan. Now, the opposition party has absolutely denied that there was any foreign interference. Uh, and there are moves to, uh, to to take the fact that there was a, that the no confidence vote was not held to the courts, um, but nonetheless, I think there is evidence to suggest that that there's certainly uh, influence from outside, regime change kind of influence from outside, attempting uh, to to uh, get involved in Pakistani politics in order to remove uh, the bloc uh, and try to get uh, Pakistan on board with respect to ru- the sanctions against Russia. Um, so if we move on to the next one, then, uh, the it's Bloomberg again. Pakistan default risk soars, currency sinks on political turmoil. So uh, uh, they're saying that uh, Pakistan's political upheaval is adding to a surge in the nation's default risk and triggering off further losses in the nation's bonds and currencies. Uh, and they're saying that, uh, uh, that they pointed out that the ongoing political turmoil had already caused the Pakistan currency to sink by 5% this year. And that's according to Moody's. So the bankers, once again, getting directly involved in uh, assisting uh, the efforts to oust uh, the, uh, you know, Imran Khan. And then finally here, we've got uh, the Pakistan Daily, the Dawn. uh, And they're saying financial services uh, question Islamabad's ability to continue reforms agreed with the IMF. Uh, One of the reports suggested that this could even force the IMF to suspend its $6 billion bailout package for Pakistan. Uh, Some reports underlined uh, America's dominant role in the IMF, uh, adding that a confrontation with Washington could not only derail Pakistan's uh, economic arrangements, but would also have a negative impact on the country's economic standing. Uh, And then uh, a quoted uh, financier, as they describe it, warned that increased tensions with the U.S. could further damage, damage Pakistan at the uh, Financial Action Task Force, so, uh, which has uh, already put Pakistan on what it calls its grey list. Uh, so, uh, you know, what do we say here, Alex? This is, uh, uh, this is well, it looks like uh, an effort from outside Pakistan to, uh, to push for regime change. Uh, Imran Khan has called an election. Uh, many people are suggesting this was a good move and the team he should probably survive that. But uh, nonetheless, it's it's more efforts at regime change, it looks like. And I think that the Pakistani president has at least been persuaded by Mr Khan of serious arguments for that, because as with most heads of state, he has the right of prorogation to dissolve parliament uh, but it's up to the Electoral Commission, actually, in the final instance, to call fresh elections. So those those two are decoupled from each other. And the dissolution of the National Assembly uh, is done when the Prime Minister can persuade the President, as he would have to persuade the Queen in Britain, that there was a pressing need for it, a national security or stability need. Uh, of course, if we zoom out and take the big picture, the whole of Eurasia generally is going into an, uh, a block that doesn't depend on America and Europe for anything anymore. So people naturally mm-hmm. think of the periphery of Asia there, Russia, China, Southeast Asia, India, and Iran. But uh, the biggest of the many countries in that region that I haven't just named, you know, because there's so many countries and populous too in Asia, is Pakistan with over 200 million. And right through the Cold War, and in fact, right since uh, Jenna and the partition, 
it was positioning itself geopolitically as whatever India is not, that is what we are. So through the Cold War with India having cordial relations with the Soviet Union because of its post-colonial or, um, or, or de-anglicization de campaign, Pakistan took the line that it wanted to make itself useful to the CIA and MI6. And since 9-11, Pakistan has been, okay, at times it was the tail wagging the dog, but Pakistan has been in, in America's wake um, as, as a very much a CIA base of operations, even more than Turkey. That's what's now being threatened. Pakistan's, you know, the, the, the Jung, or, you know, as it's known in Urdu or Dawn, is basically the, the deep state or the establishment speaking in Islamabad saying, watch out, we may lose lots of Uncle Sam's dollars and military protection. But that's already a losing argument, it would seem, certainly in Pakistan's business capital, Karachi. Yeah. They're seeing opportunities for uh, the, the maritime and land and air bridges that are being formed across Asia. And they're saying, even if the, it's a bitter pill to swallow to be in the same block as India, their arch rivals, they're probably going to want to be in that block in the end. Yeah, so we're seeing a major shift in, in power. Here, yeah, we, we, we don't have Afghanistan anymore. We as the West, the deep yeah. state, don't have Afghanistan. So what, what need is there for Pakistan anymore? We'll watch that spot. Right, let's uh, move on. And we're going to say we hope that uh, you like what UK Column is doing. We are getting some really tremendous letters of support from people, uh, emails, telephone calls, uh, cards, and uh, it's, it's truly wonderful. So... Uh, if you're not already a, a member of UK Column, sign up with us via the website. Have a look at uh, community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you can support us via the shop if you haven't got one of the excellent UK Column hoodies with and without a zip, then I encourage you to get one. I have one myself. It works extremely well in cold weather. And uh, of course, we're going out on a number of uh, different uh, channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, brand YouTube. Uh, bit shoot odyssey etc so uh join we should, us we should give a periodic reminder to the viewers that these platforms do their best with the limited bandwidth and funding they have and if people find that their service is sometimes choppy they shouldn't always assume that we've been hacked or that those platforms are uh, in backing in bad faith it's just that they're not on the same order of magnitude as youtube and vimeo who kicked us off so we can't always be smooth in our transmission Indeed, and with the exception of today, where we have had some technical problems in the studio, when people report problems with UK column broadcasts, what is usually going on is a problem with the person's own uh, internet connection. So make sure if you're watching UK column, you, you've, got the uh, you've got the least number of programs open on your machine and uh, make sure that you've got a good internet connection. Now, I'd like to uh, just remind people that the Tea House Theatre Group are hosting Peter Ford, for, for former ambassador to Syria and Bahrain. That's on Thursday, the 14th of April, 7 till 10 o'clock in the evening. And the address for that is 139 Vauxhall Walk, London, SE 115HL. So if you're in the London area and can give that group support, uh, we'd like to encourage you to go, and I believe it's £5 on the door. Now, this is a very important little segment to the news because a couple of days ago, we pointed out that this uh, very brave gentleman, Sir Christopher Choke, was speaking out in the House, and he was starting to ask questions about vaccine adverse reactions. And it appeared in the clip that we showed um, that uh, basically he was cut off very abruptly by the Speaker, the Right Honourable Sir Lindsay Oil. Sporting his beautifully impartial Ukrainian ribbon there. Well, this is true. We could have a discussion on this. But what we wanted to do in this particular uh, little clip is to be um, completely 
um, supportive of Sir Christopher Chope himself because many people contacted him as a result of our report. And he replied and he gave a common reply to several people, which we think we should re read out to you. So this is the reply from Sir Christopher Chope to members of the public who, who saw what he had attempted to do in Parliament. He said, I do not believe that the speaker was unreasonable, however, in not allowing my supplementary question to be answered on Thursday, the 31st of March. My question was insufficiently related to the original question, uh, which was about those affected by contaminated blood products and the length of time taken to inquire into that issue. I took the opportunity to inquire as to whether those suffering from COVID-19 vaccine damage would have to wait as long as those affected by contaminated blood products. But my intention was to make a point rather than seek information. The speaker gave me the opportunity to put a further question during the topical questions later that afternoon. I chose not to pursue further the point about COVID-19 vaccine damage because I thought that I had already put, that, uh, put my point on record. The manner in which the exchange between me and the speaker has been manipulated by those who seek to discredit me and others who persist in campaigning on behalf of those who have suffered as a result of COVID-19 vaccines is a separate issue. It shows the extent to which the establishment is keen to suppress open debate and information on this matter. I do not believe, however, that the speaker is of such an opinion. Indeed, he gave me the opportunity in the adjournment debate on the 2nd of March to raise these issues and has expressed strong sympathy with my concern that the Department of Health and Social Care has not responded to my questions. I hope this is helpful. With best wishes, Chris Chope. So I think it's, uh, it's a very good response that he's uh, put out. And what he's really pointing to is the manner in which the clip was put out. UK Column used it, but that clip had gone in many other places, um, was, attempted, was an attempt to discredit him and make it appear that he was in conflict with the speaker. So we're delighted to be able to put Sir Christopher Chope's uh, answer on screen. And we want to reinforce it with the fact that many people did write to him with very positive emails. I'm not going to read all of this one out, but I will pause each of the sections on the screen so that people can read it for themselves. But this one says, amongst other things, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for standing up so bravely and speaking out for all those people who've had life-changing adverse reactions or who have died as a result. Please continue to pressure Parliament on this subject because it's extremely important. And uh, um, it goes on uh, here, for, oh, sorry, this is another one, I believe. Furthermore, the government continues to push these vaccinations onto the public in the form of uh, a so-called booster. So there's many people bringing the truth to light with these uh, despicable acts. Thank you once again. Keep going, kind disregards. So this is very, very positive that we've now got people mm -hmm. taking simple action in order to support people with some power and influence in speaking out. Now, um, among the English-speaking countries, the Aussies are in the lead on this, actually, that with the fight back. And uh, people should look at Senator Malcolm Roberts of Queensland, who, among other interviewees, has been speaking to Jesse Zurawell on TNT Radio recently. Uh, his, uh, on his own website, malcolmrobertsqld.com.au, you will find uh, the transcript of the uh, zinging speech he gave in the Senate. 
uh, in Canberra last oh. week talking about these things. But the, the point that uh, he put, brings out in his Zero Well interview is that the Australians are relatively well served by minor parties, which Britain and America don't have with this, even more so in America than here, this complete bipartisan stitch up. Whereas the minor parties that do have, particularly in their upper house in the Senate, representation are now able to coordinate and form a united front and say, we're not going to take no as, a, for an, answer, as an answer from the equivalent of the regulators, um, the MHRA equivalent there. We are going to press and, uh, you know, in formation, uh, relentlessly ask the right questions. And to our shame, there's not much of that happening in Britain, the US or Canada. No, and therefore it's beholden on individual members individuals such as Sir Christopher. Yeah. Yeah, well, and members of the public to mm. support him. Okay, just one more. This is actually uh, a tweet that uh, came out. I've left the gentleman's name, Peter Waters. Dear Sir Christopher, I've just viewed your question raised in Parliament last Thursday. I just want to say well done, and I admire your courage for raising this very important question in Parliament regaining, uh, regarding vaccine adverse reactions. Shame on the speaker. Well, we've now put that bit to right. Also seen a fine statement from Malcolm Roberts in the Australian Senate raising sim similar issues. Thank you for your hard work. I'm going to suggest that these positive uh, emails are really going to uh, um, boost up people who are trying to do something to support the public. And I'd just like to add alongside this one, a big thank you to the public who've taken up our plea that get involved, do something, write a letter. And we're going to add action conquers fear. Many hands make light work and also bravo Zulu. And if you don't know what that is, that's uh, military signalese for well done. So thank you to all of our UK column viewers. Now, we'd like to bring in a very patient Debbie Evans, who's been waiting for some time to contribute. Debbie's main concern at the moment is that under the smokescreen of the uh, bigger geopolitical um, news at the moment, of which Ukraine is the dominant one, we've still got very, very important things happening to do with health in the UK. So, uh, Debbie, welcome to UK Column today, and thank you for your patience with our uh, technical problems that we had earlier. There's been a, a lot going on, so, um, well, I'm still here and uh, still campaigning, as I'm sure you're going to you're going to tell everyone now. I, I certainly am. But uh, what we're going to do is take you, I'll say, take you through your section. You Unfortunately, we weren't able to uh, alert you in advance to how we were going to cover this. So we'll, we'll, we'll take it, it through fairly slowly so that we get all the points in. But this was the first one. Some time ago, you were warning about this particular drug, Molnupiravir, and you were saying, pay attention to what's happening. Now, you found this very interesting uh, uh, article from maryannedimalzi.com, so people can search for that themselves and they'll find it. It refers back to the uh, BMJ, so we're talking real information. What is the concern over this drug, Debbie? And we should point out that it's also branded as Lagevrio or Lagevrio, whichever way you want to pronounce it, so people may come across that name more often. Okay. Yeah, that's that's correct. And and thank you very much to the viewer that's that sent me this article, because, as you know, we've been warning about molnupiravir right from the get go. This is an antiviral. Um, it's Merck, uh, one of Merck's products. Now, anybody wanting to search more information, have a look at BitChute and Dr. David Wiseman talking about molnupiravir, because this is a drug that's given to patients at home. So if, they, if they're if they vulnerable, elderly, and they test positive COVID, 
then they'll be sent a course of molnupiravir to take at home. However, it never ever passed the first stage clinical trial. We know that it's mutagenic. We also know that it's carcinogenic, and we also know that it's teratogenic. In fact, the risk for pregnant women or anybody thinking of um, having a baby is so great. There is now a pregnancy registry that can be found on the BUMPS website. But molnupiravir, we've been warning about for a very long time. And in the UK, they're rolling it out as a clinical trial. Um, and the clinical trial is called the panoramic trial. Now, this article here indicates that uh, France have refused, uh, refused molnupiravir and that uh, Merck are having trouble getting approval within Europe and Canada. And also the initial phase three of the move out trial has now been terminated. So these, these trials that were, were originally done on molnupiravir only just scraped through the FDA. It was hugely controversial. And the tests, the clinical tests were only ever done on unvaccinated people. So the effects are huge. And I have actually asked the MHRA where the safety data and the SARs are on molnupiravir. But I would urge everyone to please watch out for this, in my opinion, very toxic drug that they could just get delivered or prescribed to them at home. And if I put it in simple language, Debbie, what we're, what we're watching is more or less the, the pharmaceutical companies just deliver drugs straight onto the market. There's a claim that they've been tested in trials and they're safe. Uh, but when we actually try and pin down the authorities who, who are responsible for the safety, we can't get a, a, a full audit trail. This is, this is precisely what Senator Malcolm Roberts has been saying at the federal level in Australia, is that there's been complete regulatory capture and the pharmaceuticals are actually sitting before, during and after any involvement by the regulators as the, as the de facto regulator of themselves. Uh, regulating themselves, but also in bed with the pharmaceutical companies to help promote their sales. And if people find that an amazing statement, you will find this is correct when you start to look at the MHRA's own documents in UK and uh, some of their statements on video. Now, the next thing I want to bring up on screen, Debbie, is a letter um, which you have, I'll say, sourced from the Royal College of General Practitioners. This is absolutely outstanding. The letter's there on screen. People can freeze the screen in order to read the full. For those outside Britain, of course, this is the professional regulatory body for the family doctors, isn't it? In, indeed, as opposed to uh, uh, for consultants in the hospitals. Um, but if you want to look at the whole of the text, you can freeze it on screen. Um, but the key point that uh, caught your attention in this letter is this amazing paragraph I'll read it out for you, uh, Debbie, and then we'll bring you into comment. I do not know how many yellow cards are submitted and I'm not aware of a standard number that should be submitted. The reason the GP cannot give you long-term information on side effects or the exact ingredients of a vaccine is because, quote, that information is not available to them, unquote. This document from the Royal College of GPs, General Practitioners, is saying, Debbie, that your GP, your personal doctor, has no idea what's in the vaccines that they've been administering. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, you know, I know that we're running short of time, um, but people can read that letter and it says everything, really. I can't really add any more to the point that 
if we are going to our doctors and, and we're looking for informed consent, we want to know what the ingredients are that we're going to be given. They do not know. If we were going to a restaurant and we wanted to know the ingredients of the food that we were about to be served, the chef would be able to tell us. But the doctors, they don't know. It's that simple. It's absolutely shocking. And In that fact, was from the honourable Right. Brian and I were at a restaurant last night and we noted and we subsequently found it's now a, an, an industry standard in larger British restaurants. You can even find to the killer calorie how many calories are in each portion served to you now going to a restaurant. Indeed. Yeah. And also, if, if you order a dish off the menu and this is your your quote, Debbie, uh, give us your quote about going into a restaurant and deciding what you're going to eat and compare that to the vaccine. Okay, well, so my son's a chef, and I asked him that if he was going to put on the menu prawn a la peg, I would be asking him what the peg is. I know what a prawn cocktail is, but I don't know what a prawn a la peg is. And if he didn't know what the peg was, and he didn't know if it was poisonous, I wouldn't eat it. The peg in the vaccine is polyethylene glycol. And, um, you know, then I said to him, if, if I knew that somebody had been into your restaurant and got very sick, with maybe E. coli or norovirus or something, I wouldn't be that tempted on coming in and having a meal. And yet these doctors are giving us injections where they've got no clue of the, of the ingredients and they've got no clue of the side effects. So we're all making you know, a big fuss in restaurants, quite rightly, we want to know what we're eating. And yet we're not being told what's being injected into us because simply doctors don't know. No, they're completely ignorant and in the dark. Meanwhile, we've got uh, June Rain, head of the MHRA. That's the British authority which should be protecting the public from um, pharmaceutical drug damage, mistakes and failures. Um, you have now just demonstrated to us the GPs have no idea what's in the vaccines. It's the MHRA that's collected information showing uh, vaccine, dangerous vaccine adverse reactions, including death. Uh, you've got yet another video clips, very short, of June Rain, uh, the chief executive of that organisation, once again saying that the uh, vaccines are safe. Let's have a listen to this clip. The next question from Joanna is, what do you think is going to happen? This winter in the pandemic in the UK, and again, you know, it can be very broad or we can I think it's very uncertain, June. So I think, yeah. you know, it's a very uncertain time. So we can we can leave this as uncertain or if you'd like to add any additional comments on I think that. There are a number of factors that may help us get to an answer to the question. Um, clearly from where I'm sitting, the uptake of vaccines for boosters and for the adolescents is really important. And we've heard recently of some tragic cases of COVID in pregnancy. So I think a key factor in what happens to the pandemic will be uptake. And I hope I can play in the organization, MHRA can play a really strong role in providing the assurances that these are very safe vaccines. So that's one factor. The other factor, of course, is behaviors. And uh, here I am, I've got, got my mask beside me because I've traveled by underground today. Um, many people are not adopting those safe practices now. I think probably people need to remember where we were a year ago. So there are factors that will impact. But when I listen to what other countries are experiencing, and I was talking to other countries yesterday through the International Coalition of Regulators, they're seeing an upturn 
let's avoid that. So hopefully, if we're answering your question in about three or four weeks time, we'll say we're getting out of this. Well, did we get out of it? That clip, if I remember correctly, is, for, is from early in 2021, a very young looking June rain. The uh, crisis has aged her, that's uh, for sure. Uh, she says they're safe. Um, you've been working very hard to get a response from, amongst other people, Jeremy Hunt, uh, to say that these vaccines are safe. Um, I can call up your uh, emails on screen for Jeremy Hunt, but just put it in context. Um, remind us how you ended up speaking to Jeremy, Jeremy and what he promised you. Well, yes, um, I was very fortunate and one of the viewers sent me a link to a Zoom meeting on patient safety and I hopped on, not thinking for one minute that I would A, get into the meeting or B, be given the opportunity to ask a question. But I did ask the question, the same question as I've asked June Rain and the MHRA. And by the way, it's just very interesting to see June Rain telling us that she's been on the underground and she's got her dirty mask in front of her and she's handling it. So that was just one point. But um, I did ask Jeremy Hunt about serious adverse reactions and about an investigation. And he assured me that he was going to take this back to his committee um, for discussion, but that he was also very concerned about the serious adverse reactions after the COVID-19 injection. And then I see a tweet that, that would suggest that the um, Health and Safety Committee have got a full agenda and that this won't be agendered. So I was very keen to write to Jeremy again to remind him of what he promised me on screen on the recording. And I think um, if you go back to the 21st of March on the UK Column News Archive, then, that would, then you can see my question and his response. Um, but I've written to him again to ask for his assurance that this will will happen. And I would really ask every single viewer, if they can, to, to email. And I'm happy to give the email address in a minute to email him and ask him where the investigation is and where the debate is. That he's right, promised. Debbie, let's let's reinforce that. Let's just bring your email up on screen for viewers. This this was the header. You can see the address that you can email Jeremy Hunt at HS ccom at parliament.uk. Uh, this is what you said. I was very grateful to, to, uh, to Jeremy for taking a question asked at a recent public patient safety webinar held on Zoom with regard to serious adverse reactions of COVID-19. He assured me that he would take my question to his committee, for which I was grateful. He also expressed serious concerns himself with regard to the recent data from MHRA. It has come to my attention, however, but via a recent tweet, it appears the committee is too busy. And what you discovered there, uh, Debbie, was that the committees are apparently fully occupied with looking at other drug problems to the extent, well, it's hardly worth looking at, at vaccines. This is pretty extraordinary. That would appear to be the case. I can't think of any other reason why the agendas would be as full as they are. And I think we should take that as a very worrying sign as well. Right. OK. And of course, the other thing that you've done to try and lever out the truth as to what's been happening with uh, vaccine deaths and adverse reactions is that you've been going direct to Professor Pierre Mo Mohamed uh, from the Commission on Human Medicines. And he, of course, is ultimately the top of the pyramid with uh, public safety with regard to pharmaceutical and, and vaccine products. And despite going to him, 
um, we'll, we'll put them up on screen so that people can again freeze them and, and check that what we're saying is absolutely correct. But you've got an email um, chain which shows that when you went to Professor Pir Mohammed, he tried to dodge the questions that you asked by referring the matter back to the MHRA. Yeah, that's right. I did, because um, I, I, I understand he's had COVID because he was on the NHS Improvement uh, Board meeting. And so I said I was very reassured to see him there, but I was dis disappointed that I hadn't received a direct reply from him. Within five minutes of me sending that, I received a, a personal reply from him to say that I that my um, request and my questions would be addressed in the next few days. So I was very alarmed when I saw an email from the MHRA um, that had been forwarded by him to them for a response. So I've now emailed him again to say that um, he must have misunderstood because I was asking him the questions in his position as chair of the Commission of Human Medicines and that I didn't, uh, I felt I was being stonewalled by the MHRA and I would be grateful for his personal response. As yet, I haven't heard back, but if I do, you'll be the first to know. Uh, Debbie, I, I rather suspect you're being very um, professional and kind by allowing him the let out. Let's just have a look at these emails on screen to reinforce that this is your first one to the professor. Uh, I'm very concerned that MHRA are reporting over 1.5 million adverse reactions, vaccine adverse reactions, and over 2,000 deaths via the yellow card scheme. We're aware that there's huge under-reporting of yellow cards, so we must expect these figures in real time to be much higher. Whilst I appreciate these figures cannot be directly attributed to the vaccine equally without a thorough and forensic investigation, we will never know. I've been in regular contact with MHRA Dame Jude Rain and diligently watched every single MHR board meeting. I am very concerned that a simple question is not being answered. It almost seems as though I am being stonewalled. I do hope uh, that this is not the case. And then your question, you put very succinctly, please can you tell me what advice you'll be giving the MHRA with regard to investigating these serious life-limiting and sometimes life-ending effects? Will you be recommending a thorough investigation? If not, why not? Also, I would appreciate your definition of safe. I note the word safe must never be used according to APBI. Could you explain? If we go on to the second email here, this is um, you going back to the professor saying you've just received an email from MHRA in response to the email you sent him. Uh, you say he may have misunderstood, but you're prompting him to respond to you uh, in person in his formal capacity as chair of the Commission on Human Medicines. And the last one here is you getting back again and expressing your disappointment in the fact that he hasn't replied. Debbie, there can be no possibility he doesn't understand what you asked. This is him trying to sidestep his responsibility and drift the problem back onto the MHRA. Absolutely passing the buck. Um, but I'm not going to allow them to pass the buck and I will carry on until we get the answers that we need, which is why I need everyone that's watching and listening to join me and ask the same question, because unless it, it really is effective, you know, if we do if we do this collectively, it's effective and we just have to carry on until they start giving us the answers that we need and deserve.
So for those listening in audio only, Professor Pierre Mohamed's email address is m-u-n-i-r-p at liverpool.ac.uk and be particularly careful about being polite and reasonable in talking to such a senior figure, of course. Uh, I'd like to reinforce that, Alex, and say to our viewers and listeners that I believe that one of the reasons that uh, Debbie is being so successful is because she's writing such short, succinct, very clear and very polite professional letters and emails. This is what's giving them the problem. And I just wanted to end uh, by saying, Debbie, and of course, you haven't left June Rain uh, off the uh, hook because you've also emailed her to say, where is your answer to the questions that I'm asking? So, um, Debbie, thank you very much for what you're doing. And uh, we're going to continue to warn the uh, UK public of the dangers of the vaccines, vaccines which GPs, we now understand, have no idea what's in the actual liquids. And if you ask them what pegylation they, is, they say, well, it's a special, wonderful encapsulation and that's all you need to know because that's all I know. Indeed. Okay, now we're watching the time. Uh, we're in the slightly unusual circumstances today because this will be a, a recorded UK column news. Uh, Mike, I should bring you back in on the subject of uh, COVID. Um, and I'm also going to suggest that because we've got some other interesting subjects, we, we can't do an extra time. We should uh, just continue with the topics. That uh, well, look, look, Brian. I'm going to say we can't continue uh, because you know if we don't end pretty soon, we're going to not have time to get the archive up. Uh, you know, it's going to be tomorrow before the ar archive's up. So we should actually finish probably with this one or maybe one one other. Okay. All right. Let's let's uh, let's continue with COVID, and then we'll pick a couple of uh, very short subjects or slides to finish with. Okay, well, well, look, I just wanted to mention the uh, the COVID inquiry. Um, so uh, let's put this on screen. Uh, this inquiry was launched uh, um, a couple of months ago. And uh, well, as you can see on screen there, it says the COVID-19 inquiry has been set up to examine the UK's preparedness and response to the COVID-19 pandemic and to learn lessons for the future. Uh, the pandemic has affected us all and uh, the inquiry is holding a public consultation uh, to ensure that everybody in the UK has the opportunity to give their views on how it should go about its work. Um, so uh, the terms of reference intend to cover preparedness, the public health response, the response in the health and care sector, and our economic response. So in other words, the response of uh, the, uh, the results of lockdown and so on. Uh, but look, the, this consultation ends today. So this is important. If anybody hasn't uh, already taken part in it, uh, then uh, this today has to be uh, it has to be done today. So if we just go on to the next one then and just have a look at the main participants here and just uh, if you just progress your way through these, first of all we've got the uh, right honourable Baroness Heather Carroll Hallett, DBE, and she's responsible for making procedural decisions and so on. Uh, but she uh, has been a coroner of the inquest of the 56 people who died on the 7th of July bombings. Uh, next of all we've got Ben. Uh, ben Connor, uh, he is a senior civil servant uh, and uh, works for the Ministry of Justice and also has worked for the Ministry of Justice and also the Department for Education. Uh, next, we've got Martin here. Let's just remind ourselves, solicitor at uh, Field Fisher LLP. Uh, he was on the Hutton Inquiry and also on the 7-7 London bombings inquest. And finally, we've got uh, Hugo uh, Yes, Hugo Keith, QC, uh, who was also uh, lead, well, in fact, he was lead counsel in the inquest on the London bombings of 7th of July 2005. So these are the types of people that are going to be running this inquest. 
Um, and uh, if we go on to the next one then. Uh, so uh, this was just the introduction uh, from the chair of the inquiry and uh, we don't need to see that any longer. So let's move on and keep going. Yeah. Uh, and this, yeah. There we are. Uh, so that's the, the letter from Baroness Hallett. So this is the terms of reference consultation. Uh, you can uh, find that on the inquiry website. Um, but if we go to the next one, uh, we have this organization, um, the Together Campaign, and uh, they have put together a fantastic uh, sort of how-to for this consultation. Um, so uh, the, the, the title on the page is UK COVID-19 Inquiry Government Survey Complete Before 7th of April. To save you time, we've tried to simplify the process as much as possible. Uh, they provide a link to the survey on their page. Um, and they also provide uh, some uh, excellent uh, templates for how you might want to answer uh, the questions in the inquiry, uh, sorry, in the consultation. Um, so uh, do take part would be my advice. Okay, uh, Mike, thank you very much for that. Now, just while I'm on the screen, I'm just going to see if I can uh, uh, cut through to just... Uh, a very, very short uh, report from Alex on, on the subject of uh, uh, what's happened with German insurance as a result of, uh, of uh, COVID. And uh, take us through this, but quick as you can, Alex, please. It is actually from February. It was reported on the 1st of March, but it goes in well now. We might get a closing comment from uh, Debbie on this as well. Die Welt, which is right of centre and uh, has been a little freer than other German mainstream uh, newspapers in reporting the truth about COVID is very concerned that uh, a, a pro-life health insurer, it's, it's a, a private universal obligatory model in Germany, so you have to choose a health insurer that reflects your values and pro-vita or pro-life is one of the more um, uh, you know, uh, uh, person-friendly of these uh, insurers or BKKs. Uh, it has uh, a chairman, Andreas Schöfbeck, who has been uh, fired peremptorily, so Frieslaus gekündigt, uh, dismissed without any uh, lead-in time. And he, that has been done to him by the management board. This was reported, as I say, on the 1st of March. What's going on here is that Andreas Schöfbeck had written a letter to the head of the Paul Ehrlich Institute. Once again, it's the regulator, because although it sounds like a, a highfalutin German institute, it is simply an executive agency of the German Federal Health Ministry. Uh, and, prefer, and does the same medical regulatory role specifically for human vaccines uh, as the MHRA would do in Britain and the other well-known names around the English-speaking world that we all have learned about. That's the PEI's job in Germany. Schöfbeck sounded the alarm quite literally and the 24-member um, management board had a majority vote to boot him out for this letter. So what's going on here in the letter which was written on the 21st of February is that uh, Schöfbeck wrote to Herr Professor Dr. Tsihutek, the head of the uh, PEI, so the equivalent of the MHRA, uh, saying, I'm sounding the alarm because we have uh, complete data for the first half of 2021 and about half the data for third quarter 2021 already. And we have 10.9 million uh, insurance code indications in our random check of our insured clients. Um, so uh, just under 11 million Germans insured with this, uh, this insurer alone had in practice, if you look at the insurance codes, made a claim for uh, vaccine damage in anonymized, in anonymized data. And so he, he works this out and extrapolates it and says that if we extrapolate this to the whole of 2021 and to the whole of the German population federally, 
we have at the bottom of the screen, it says, presumably two and a half to three million people in Germany who have sought medical treatment for adverse effects. Uh, and he's, he's suggesting it's for COVID, of course, working on the codes. He says, we see this as an enhanced alarm signal or an, an, a, an urgent alarm. And we could get definitive data, he says, if we got all the German insurers in Britain, this would be centralized through the NHS, but in Germany, it's decentralized. If we got all the, the, the insurers uh, to carry out similar checks of the claim codes that have already been submitted. At the bottom, the percentage, he says, is that uh, this would indicate that four to five percent approximately of all those who have been jabbed for COVID uh, have had to seek medical treatment for adverse uh, effects of those jabs. He finally says uh, that this is um, obviously something to do in, in our view, and this is why he was sacked, I think. He says, in our view at the insurance uh, company, this has to do with uh, the uh, effects of the jab itself. And he complains that it takes a doctor, as in other Western countries, unacceptably long, around half an hour, to fill in the equivalent of a yellow card notification. And he says that uh, three million uh, suspected cases of adverse reactions would mean one and a half million man hours for uh, German family doctors and other treating doctors, which is an, an annual uh, cost of a thousand doctor hours. Uh, so a doctor, uh, sorry, an annual uh, cost equivalent to employing a thousand doctors full time just to fill in the notifications, which is completely unacceptable to him. But I wonder whether Debbie has a very quick uh, closing comment here, because the different model of healthcare they have there, the Bismarckian model, uh, obscures some things that Britain uh, has more data on. But by the same token, Debbie, I think it also indicates that with a variety of models and some people being more conscientious than others, it allows some things to come to light, which in Britain would be covered up centrally. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the insurance debate rages on, especially in the UK, because um, I think insurance companies are now saying that if you volunteer yourself for an injection, they're not going to consider any kind of help or cover. But as we can see in Spa's pandemic 2025 to 2028, um, that turns, that changes. So I think all eyes on Germany and also all eyes on Thailand, because not insurance companies, but the country, uh, the government is paying out for serious adverse reactions, millions of pounds. So things are happening. We need to keep our eyes closely on, on all of these stories. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, with an eye on the clock, we need to finish. Let's just have a couple of on-screen images uh, with a little bit of dark humour. But I liked this one that was sent through to the column. Uh, we've got a very concerned looking Zelinsky, and he's apparently saying on the telephone, Hunter, this is not going as you and your family promised. Suspect that's a little bit too close to the truth. And this last one, you'll have to help us out with uh, it's one of these woven fabric shoulder patches uh, to display as an insignia. Uh, of course, it's a joke, this one. Uh, you won't find it on any battlefield in, in the Ukraine from any side. Uh, but in Russian, with a, with a rather natty, stylized version of Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov looking a bit exasperated at the end of his tether, uh, the, the legend in Russian is It's such a bind having to talk to idiots. <laughs> and he's talking about Western governments, of course, and possibly Joe Biden. The, these words are not too far from what he's actually said in public, uh, let alone in private over the years. Yeah. OK. Well, we're going to have to end there. We're going to say a big thank you to Mike Robinson for his work to get the uh, studio up and running again so that we could record this UK column news. 
Um, rest easy. Unfortunately, these seem to have been problems with our equipment. Um, so a lot of people discussing whether this was somebody else interfering. No, I think it's Gremlins closer to home. Mike, well done. Big thank you to uh, you, Alex, for joining me today in the studio. And also to Debbie, thank you very much for your contribution. But at the end of the day, it's you, the audience, that make UK Column. And uh, we just want to say once again, thank you very, very much to everybody who's subscribing and donating because we can only do what we do with your financial help. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.